I invite you to turn to the Psalms, particularly to Psalm 73. Psalm 73. <clears throat> I've been reading a, uh, a book. It's really a compilations by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, and it is a compilation of sermons that he preached, around 16 of them, I believe, on this psalm. And it's entitled, Faith on Trial. And I'm learning a lot, though I've studied the psalm since I was in high school. I've learned a lot recently about it. And so I wanted to preach two sermons. And today we will look at the first half of the psalm, and then, Lord willing, next Sunday at the second half. Hear God's word, Psalm 73. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues stretch through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you have set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. That ends the reading of God's <clears throat> holy and inspired and inerrant word. Allow me to date myself. One of my favorite television shows back in the 70s and early 80s was The Rockford Files. That's when, mu that's when television was just at its best. The main character was Jim Rockford. And Jim Rockford was likable. He was everything a hero was not. He was an ex-con turned private investigator. And what made Jim Rockford unique was that he 
would rather run away from a fight than get in a fight. He did not carry a gun. In fact, in every fight I saw him, and he always lost. He always got beat up. He'd rather go fishing than work. So each plot, they pretty much had to pry him into it to get him to want to do anything that was work. He lived with his father in this trailer by the ocean. He had a nice car. It was a firebird, but he always had to turn the pink slip in because he never had any money, and so they would hock the car. And he sometimes aided in those programs by his detective friend, police detective Dennis Becker, or his cowardly former cellmate from prison named Angel. But to me, the most unique guest character on the show was another private investigator played by the young Tom Selleck named Lance White. Lance was everything Jim Rockford was not. He was handsome. He was smart. Uh, Everybody liked him. Everybody thought he was funny. He was charming. He could do nothing wrong. He had a bright new, brand new, beautiful car, always dressed immaculately, always solved the cases. In one of the episodes, he said to Jim, Jim, I don't know how you're going to make it in this business as a private investigator because everything came so easy to Lance White. And understandably, Jim did not like Lance, and he was very irritated by him. This past summer, I taught a home Bible study for the young adults at the Bridges House on the book of Job. And the main recurring question in the book of Job is, why do bad things happen to godly people? That's pretty much the entire book is discussing that question. But this psalm deals with the flip side of that question. Psalm 73 is addressing the question, not why do bad things happen to godly people, but why do good things happen to the ungodly? This psalm was written by a musician, a composer named Asaph. Asaph lived about 3,500 years ago. And he was the court composer, best we know. He was the court composer in the court of King David of Israel. He was in charge of the worship music that was performed at the tent of meeting. And along with David and a few others, he composed some of the psalms. And Psalm 73 is one of the psalms which Asaph wrote. Asaph looked at the world. And he saw what happened around him, and what he saw bothered him very much because he saw that wicked people, ungodly people, in many cases do very well in this world. Often, they do far better than the godly. And this is not what we should expect in God's moral universe. If God is sovereign, you would not expect it to be that way. We should expect that the ungodly would not prosper. Those who are opposed to God would not enjoy his blessings, and those who seek to follow him would prosper. But that is not what Asaph observed. Typically, it's not what we observe. He saw godless people prospering while the godly did not, and he did not. And he saw unbelievers doing well, living healthy, long lives while he was sick, And we read the bitter cry of his soul, which is summarized in verse 13, that says, In vain, all in vain, have I kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. In other words, he concludes at that point, it has not paid to serve God. Has that thought ever crossed your mind? 
Have you never watched uh, the world around you, perhaps even particular people? And this person you know doesn't seem to care about God in any fashion or form, and yet they, they're like Lance White. They have great help. They seem to be successful. They get recognition. They get promotions. And you're sick all the time and barely scrape by. This is the question that's raised here in Psalm 73. Many scholars through the years have said that Psalm 73 is the best treatment of this question in the entire Bible. Well, let's look at it together. Like I said, this is the first of two sermons. We're going to look more at the, the hard part of it, the difficult part. When, when Asaph is losing his faith, that's what we will focus on today. Lord willing, next week we'll see how God brings him out of that. But verse 1, Asaph begins with a conclusion. He starts where he ends up, and that is with the truth that truly or surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Certain truths in life are foundational. There are many. We have many foundational truths as believers. One of those is that God is good. That is a foundational truth that we need to stand, stand on. If you try and, and interpret the world around you by just looking at everything that happens, reading the news and reading of what happens all over the planet, and you try and interpret that and derive the major principles to stand on in life, you will be in trouble. You'll reach all sorts of wrong conclusions. But if you and I can start off standing in the position that truly God is good to his people, then that's a foundational truth, and we can use that then to interpret what happens around us. God doesn't vary. There's no limitation on this. It doesn't say sometimes he's good or he's good when he can be good. No, there are no qualifications. Asaph is saying, this is my proposition. God is always good to Israel. That is to his people. And you can sense there's a story coming after this. And I can tell you as a, a father, and hopefully with our, all of our grandkids, I often, before they would go to sleep, would tell stories. And I called them little chip stories, and usually they dealt with things I did wrong and got in trouble, and I was trying to let them know so you wouldn't, they wouldn't repeat the same. And I'd tell them things from my childhood. But a good storyteller usually begins with a statement. They begin with a conclusion. And that's when you look in the eyes of that child and have their attention and you say, let me tell you something, it never pays to cheat. And you make sure they understand, now you tell them how you arrived at that. And I had many examples that I could go with. And then I come back to it at the end, it never pays to cheat. So here's what Asaph is saying. Truly, God is good to Israel. Certainly, God is good to Israel to those who are pure in heart. So we begin with that. And now he begins to tell the story. He says, but as for me. He starts with the proposition, then he goes back and tells how he almost fell away from that and how God brought him back to that position. And now he restates it. So he recounts his journey. He tells us in verse 2, I almost slipped. I was falling away. He had almost lost his faith. And he compares this to sliding backwards. It's a picture like if you're ever... Sliding backwards, I read of a, a, a ride at a carnival in Fort Lauderdale that broke at this, this fair, and these people it, it began to fall backwards in the screams as this thing was falling. And falling can scare us, especially if you're, you're high up. It's very scary. C.H. Spurgeon, in a sermon entitled Little Sins, he, he said spiritual casualties are rarely a blowout. 
They're caused by slow leaks, perhaps a neglect of the means of grace or the tolerance of a small sin. Perhaps you can relate to this. We use the term backsliding, but it's where you know I'm not making progress. I'm going backwards. I'm doubting the things of God. When I was coming to the end of my first year in seminary, and you would think seminary would be the place where you're surrounded, you're, every day you're spending hours and hours and studying things related to the Bible, you think it would be a, a, a wonderful place of, of spiritual nourishment. And it can be, but that was not my experience. And I was, I was falling. I was, the, the experience of Asaph was happening to me. And I was sitting with a guy one day, and he said, Chip, how are you doing? And it was Al Baker. Many of you know Al and Winnie Baker. Al was on the staff years ago. And I felt safe with Al, and I said, to be honest with you, I'm not, I'm not doing too well. And I really opened up to him. I told him I felt my heart was growing cold. I was growing cynical toward things. And he began to meet with me every morning, early, before classes, and we would pray. And mainly I'd listen to him pray. I kind of rode on his back. For a little while and he got me back on his feet and I feel eternally grateful to, to Al Baker but that was what Asaph was feeling he I was I was slipping he said well why was he almost falling it's not a mystery he tells us in verse 3 in his case he said I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked that was the point of doubt for him that was the point of stumbling for him he looked out and he saw ungodly people arrogant blessed, and that caused him great trouble. And it caused him to question and to be puzzled by the ways of God. And so he tells us, and we'll look at this more later, but he summarizes, he said, I was cleansing my heart. In our words today, we would say that he was practicing a godly life. He was avoiding sin. He was meditating on God's word. He was spending time in prayer. He was examining his own life. He was confessing and repenting of known sin in his life. He was trying to keep clear of the world. He was doing everything he knew to do to walk with God, but he's having trouble. His faith is on trial because he looked at the ungodly and he saw a striking contrast. And he said, these men we all know to be ungodly. They don't claim to be godly, and they are prospering in every sense of the word. And they're not in trouble as others. And when he observed that, it became a trial for his faith. But it's even deeper than that, because he goes on to say he was not only troubled by what he saw, he envied it. I was envy, he said, of the, of the arrogant. This is the root of the problem. That's where it lies. It was not so much an intellectual problem. It started there, but then he began to think, why isn't God treating me this way? If God is good, then why is he not blessing me the way that he is blessing these others? So Asaph observed the ungodly doing quite well. Have you ever felt that way? It's probably the rare person who hasn't. Um, I, was, uh, I was on a committee a number of years ago in our presbytery. For you non-presbyterians here, a presbytery is a geographical area that includes all the Presbyterian churches of that denomination in that area. Our presbytery, Macon, also included Savannah, St. Simons, and uh, over to Augusta, and then back the other direction to Albany and Columbus, down to Valdosta. At that time, it was that size. I was on a committee that helped to find support and oversee a ministry to seamen that came to Savannah, to the port there. It is called the International Seamen's House. 
And we had a director at that time. He's now deceased, but his name was Kurt, Kurt Singleton. And he and his wife uh, served the Seaman's House at the port there in Savannah. And on our committee, we would meet and we would hear Kurt's reports of what he was doing, which would boggle the imagination. Mariners from all over the world coming to that port. Uh, and they're so far from home, and they are lonely, and they are confused. And Kurt and his wife would, would, go, on, Kurt would go on the ships. He would befriend them. He would give out Bibles and Christian literature. They'd have them to the, the uh, International Seaman's house itself. They would give them coffee and food and to give, take the van and carry them to Walmart to buy supplies that they would need. I mean, what a humble, uh, behind-the-scenes deed of mercy and giving the gospel. And we would sit at these committee meetings, and there was never enough money. The guy was not, he was paid dirt wages. I mean, I don't know how, I don't know how they lived month to month on the little amount that Kurt was paid. He had terrible health problems, which ultimately killed him. And we would struggle, and I—I got to be honest with you. In these meetings, I would question, Lord, <laughs> these people are doing your work with the purest motives. Why not send some of those resources this way, rather than the ways that they seem to go that are so opposed to you? We have missionaries here every year, and I've sat and listened to their stories, or sat where you are hearing them talk. And often they are going through terribly hard times that have nothing to do with their own choices, either health-wise or crimes committed against them. And remember one couple from Ecuador that was serving in Ecuador? And it's, I don't know about you, but I find myself thinking like Asaph at times saying, Lord, has somebody switched the price tags? Like somebody walked into a store and removed something off a real valuable thing and put it on something that was cheap? I mean... Why are you not resourcing? Why is this happening? That's what Asaph looked at, and it bothered him. So the reality, he, he says in verses 4 to 7, is unbelievers do prosper. And here he gets specific. They seem to have no problems, he says in verse 4. Their bodies are fat and sleek. And you may say, how is being fat prospering? We tend to say, hey, that a, that's a, could be a health problem today. Look, you've got to remember, when this was written, from what I understand, half of the population was half-starved most of the time. So to, be, to have any excess weight would have been a sign that you are from abundance, that you've got a lot. So that was a desire. They said, look, that's a sign of prosperity. That's a sign of having food. And so he saw that and says in verse 5, they're not in trouble as others are. They're free from the burdens common to man. Asaph looked and he saw that they live apparently easy lives. The major problems of life just seem to bounce off of them. They just kind of always keep moving. You know, hey, just... You know, make, make your uh, lemonade out of your lemons and you just kind of move on. And he saw that and it bothered him. Does it ever bother you? It bothers me. Let me give you an example that I wrestle with. Take Hugh Hefner, 86 years old. Can you believe it? 86 years, a fossil. No offense to those else here who are 86 years old. But here's a man who became rich and ultimately famous in the 1950s and 60s. How? By selling pornography. That's how he became rich. In 1985, he suffered a stroke. He defined the stroke. He later said it was really a blessing because it enabled him to prepare to fight the religious fundamentalist. About the same time, I remember as a campus minister, 
There's a 29-year-old Christian musician, Christian leader, minister named Keith Green. Many of you know the name of Keith Green. Well, at age 29, he, along with two of his children, ages 3 and 4, or 2 and 3, very young, die in a plane crash out in Texas. I'll honestly tell you, I wrestle with, why take him and leave Hefner? Why take the 29-year-old believer who wasn't perfect, but having almost a worldwide impact, and his children, two of them at least, and leave him? Well, I don't know if things like that bother you, but they certainly certainly bothered Asaph. Verse 8 and 9. He says they mock. They set their mouths against the heavens. Verses 10 to 12, they have their followers. They are noted. They are quoted. They are promoted. They are portrayed as culturally relevant and super intelligent and heroes of truth and freedom. And Christians are seen as nitwits, backwoodsy, closed-minded, bigots, Bible-thumping, fundamental. Did I leave anything out? (laughs) Let me give you a modern-day example. Some of you have read about the new atheist. I've read a lot of their stuff. Sam Harris, Richard Dawkins, the late Christopher Hitchens, among others. Now, this is a kind of a current movement that has gained a lot of very aggressive, I mean, they're very aggressive politically and very aggressive socially, and it's gained momentum, the new atheist. And a lot of this happened after 9-11, when guys like Sam Harris, these professors, they said the issue here in Islam, the issue is belief in God. So they lump Judaism, Christianity, Islam, they throw them all in together. And basically the tenet is that religion is the cause of the world's evil, and they say God has never existed, and to believe in him is not only wicked, it is dangerous, and it ends up with tragedies like 9-11. And then it goes on specifically and says the Christian faith should be wiped out and that science can explain everything. Unless you think I'm making this up, Take the bestseller, published six years ago, Richard Dawkins' book, The God Delusion. I assume some of you have read that, The God Delusion. Now let me give you one of his most strident summaries of his description of the God of the Old Testament. Brace yourself. The God of the Old Testament, this is Dawkins' words, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction, jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleaner, misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, megalomaniacal, can I, or whatever you say it, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. That's his summary of his understanding of the God of the Old Testament. One well-known Christian writer said that may be the most offensive and concentrated attack on God ever printed. That's a bestseller, folks. It's Psalm 73, 9. Their mouths lay claim to the heavens to take possession of the earth. And Asaph saw it then. We see it now. People making blasphemous statements about God. And do they get in trouble? No, they get rich in that case. And they say, we don't believe in your God. Look at us. You do believe in God. Nothing goes wrong with us. Look at you. You're trying to tell me that there's a God? And so Asaph, a godly man, was provoked to trouble and doubt. And his conclusion in verses 13 and 14, I read it to you earlier, all in vain. 
All in vain have I kept my heart clean, washed my hands in innocence. Basically saying, what is the point of being godly? Or to put it in our terms, what is the advantage of being a Christian? If those who are not Christians get what they want and I don't get it, not only do I not get it, they seem overly blessed and I have all these troubles. That's his conclusion at that point. Let me give you a few observations and then next week I want to continue with the text as to things God reveals to him. I want to talk for just a couple of minutes about the nature of doubt. What is doubt? Another word in the Bible for doubt, and they go together, is unbelief. Unbelief toward God, toward Christ himself, was the prime sin of which Christ said the Holy Spirit would convict the world. God sees unbelief as a very serious sin. It is a sign of the fall. It goes back to the Garden of Eden when our ancient foreparents, Adam and Eve, who were perfect and loved God and lived with God and walked and talked with God, the Bible tells us they were tempted by the devil. And the temptation he used, he started out to get his foothold, was to doubt what God had said. Indeed, has God said this? You will not, surely you will not die. And has God even said that? So his mechanism was doubt to get them to disobey. Not that they did not have full understanding of what they were doing when they chose to disobey. But as a result of that, they suffered the consequences of their crime against God. They were banished from the garden. But even then, God promised a Redeemer. Over the centuries, we find God's people studying and looking for that Redeemer that God promised who would come. And yet, even when Jesus comes, those who had studied the Scriptures the most, seeing all the prophecies that had foretold, he would be born in Bethlehem, he'd be born of a virgin, in Bethlehem of Judea, and so forth, they would refuse to believe. And he frequently was rebuking those for their unbelief. We could even say for their doubt. And 1 John chapter 5 says, Unbelief is an affront to God. Listen to these words from 1 John 5. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. So where does unbelief, where does doubt come from? Well, it comes from our own minds, our own hearts. It comes from others that want to influence us to doubt, like Richard Dawkins. Ultimately, though, it comes from the devil. How do we deal with our doubts as believers? Now I'm talking to Christians who are here. Realize their existence first. Uh, monitor yourself. Do a heart check. You may think that doubt is only an issue of the intellect and of the mind, but it's really an issue of the heart. Because doubt always brings with it actions. Carolyn James in her book, When Life and Beliefs Collide, said, When we are not sure about God, about his goodness, his love, or his control over our circumstances, when we begin to believe our lives are meaningless and beyond hope, when we lose the energy or the will to face another day, unbelief has set in. It confronts us every day in a hundred different ways. And then she says, Unbelief never travels alone, but it brings bitterness and other sins of the heart. Like the bowler's lead pen, it has the power to make a lot of other things in our lives topple over. Unbelief drains us of hope and undermines our courage at the very moment we need it. 
Secondly, in dealing with your doubts, not only realize their existence, take those doubts seriously. What appears to be very small can become big in a hurry. Now, this isn't a time for my personal testimony, but but there are, I've got plenty of unanswered questions about the ways of God. Some of those, though, I have, I guess you could say I'm at peace with those because I realize there's no way to get an answer in this life. I hope to get an answer in the next one, but I don't let them bother me on a day-to-day basis. I just try to, but if it's a real doubt to where, you know, I know that I'm really wrestling with this. God, you say that you're good, but how in the world? And day to day this bothers me. I think those kind of doubts are like termites. And termites are so destructive because they're subtle. You almost never see them uh, or hear them. Uh, Whereas a fire, if your house caught fire, you would respond immediately because it's so seen, it's so obvious. But termites is just slow, steady damage but the result ends up being the same, if not worse. And so if you, if you have doubts and you know they are affecting you, talk. Talk to someone you respect. And just, even if they don't have the answer to say, look, would you listen to me and not come down on me too hard, but I want to tell you what I'm thinking and I need some help and I need some perspective. Third observation. Do not underestimate your own heart's proclivity to backsliding. I think it's true. We're... It's an incline. The Christian life is an incline. And if we're not moving forward, we will be moving backwards. It's not a flat playing field. And so Asaph used the term falling. Like I said, we use the term backsliding. It was a struggle. And he said, I was almost in this situation. Many of you here, I hope, read Table Talk, the uh, the, uh, little monthly edition of the devotional journal from Ligonier Ministries. In April... There was an article written by Mark Ross entitled, Help for Our Unbelief. And he began it by these words, When facing hard times, Christians sometimes discover that their faith is gradually being eroded. I like that phrase. Gradually being eroded by their circumstances. Though we are doing our best to stand upon the promises of God, we can sense that our feet are beginning to slip. Like the desperate father who met Jesus at the foot of the Mount of Transfiguration, we might find ourselves crying out, I believe! Help me in my unbelief! Uh, This is my personal opinion. My personal opinion is alarm is going off in one of the buildings. Just trying to stick with me for, thank you, Eric, for a couple of, somebody opened or shut a door that shouldn't. Okay. He said, help me in my unbelief. I want to give you my opinion right now, my observation. I believe as we age, the temptations take different forms. Uh, Though some of us struggle with sin, I can read journals that I wrote years ago, and I'm ashamed that often many of the same sins I'm struggling with now were exactly the same as when I was 19 years old. But I can tell you one area that I think gets a whole lot worse as we age, and I'm 56 right now, almost 57, and that is the area of doubt. It seemed like the onslaught of temptations before when I was younger were youthful passions, predictable youthful passions of lack of self-control and so forth. But now it's more mental. It's more the ways of God. Lord, what are you doing here? How can you be good and this be happening? And I know there's... I'm in spiritual warfare. When I walk out of hospital rooms and, and, and been with people in our church that have died, and sometimes, folks... If you think morphine can stop all pain, it cannot if you've not been around one of those situations. 
and I'm walking to my car, and I realize my faith is like a feather, and I'm wondering what I feel like Asaph. I'm going, Lord, what are you doing? Are you good to Israel? If so, how does this fit? So do not underestimate your own heart's proclivity for backsliding. Last of all, continually shore up the foundation. Without going into the details, what we'll see with, with Asaph is he went back to the beginning. He went back to the basics. He went back to prayer, to God's Word, to worship, Christ-centered worship where you engage your heart and your mind, to supportive fellowship with others, to learning about Him. And so do that. Go back to the basics. And the basic theological truth is the goodness of God. Probably the first prayer any child learns, in America anyway, is God is great. Say it with me. God is good. Let us thank him for our food. You know what? That is good theology. God is great. God is good. You can stand on that, and that's what we have to go back to. Let me close by reading you a couple of quotations and tell you one thing that happened. These quotations I came across this week on the goodness of God. Jerry Bridges said, God's goodness is the preeminent expression of his glory. Matthew Henry said, he who feeds his birds will not starve his babies. John Blanchard said, God gives not only generously, but genuinely, not only with an open hand, but with a full heart. I read in one of Philip Yancey's book, uh, Where's God When It Hurts? He told about talking with a a priest who had just performed the funeral of an eight-year-old girl. And the, the parish of the priest had prayed and wept and shared the family's agony for more than a year as this girl fought a futile battle against cancer. The funeral had strained the emotions, the energy, and even the faith of the priest. And when Philip Yancey was talking to him, he said, What can I possibly say to her family? I have no solution to offer them. What can I say? And he paused for a moment, and then he added this. I have no solution to their pain. I have only an answer. And the answer is Jesus Christ. He is the answer. Not the solution to their pain, but the answer to them. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for Christ who bore our iniquities on the cross and who suffered and died uh, what would appear to be a meaningless death to those who watched. Uh, And yet we know that was in your perfect predetermined plan, as it says in the book of Acts, that you might bring us to you. We pray for help for those of us that are believers here trusting in Christ. We pray in the area of doubt that you would guard us against cynicism uh, and a futility that creeps in because of that. And give us sensitive hearts and minds toward you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.